John chapter 1, and we're at verses 50 and 51, the Son of Man. However, we'll begin at verse 43 to understand the context. John chapter 1, 43. The next day, he purposed to go forth into Galilee, and he found Philip, and Jesus said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You shall see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you shall see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord, we ask that you would grant to us to have the kind of faith that Nathanael had, that when he saw a bit of the glory of God, he believed. We pray, Lord, that not only will we have faith to believe in the small amount, the minute amount of whatever you have revealed to us, but we pray that you would enlarge our faith to believe and to anticipate the greater glories that follow, that we might see you in all your glory, that we might see you as you have desired for us to see you, to see you face to face, to one day behold you and to be like our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask, Lord, that this will be our heart's desire to grow in faith and to see God in greater glory. And we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, in our study of John chapter 1, we have come to this place at the end when Jesus continues his dialogue with Nathaniel. Nathaniel was presumably a friend or at least an acquaintance with Philip. And we see this because Philip, after he understands and meets Christ face to face, he encounters Philip, or Nathaniel. Philip encounters Nathaniel and encourages Nathaniel to come and see the Messiah. That Philip has personally met him, and now Nathaniel is brought to Christ. Well, in verses 47 to 49, Jesus does encounter Nathaniel, and Nathaniel is commended to be an Israelite in, in, in an Israelite indeed. That is, he was an Israelite physically. He was a literal descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob among the 12 tribes. He was that, but he was an Israelite indeed. That is, he had a pure heart. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Psalm 73, 1. That's what Nathanael had. That's why Jesus says, in whom is no guile, no deceit. He had a pure heart. Now, that pure heart was not something Nathanael was born with because he was born, just like all of us, with a corrupt heart. 
But at a point in Nathanael's life, God converted him and gave him a pure heart. That's when he believed and put faith in the gospel of Christ. Then Nathanael is curious in verse 48, how is it that you know me like this? How do you know my inside? How do you know that God has changed me? Because I know what I'm like on the inside. I know what I used to be like, but I'm not like that anymore. But how do you know that I am a different man? And Jesus gives him an indication in verse 48. And the indication is that when he was under the fig tree, he saw Nathanael. So, before Philip called Nathanael to encounter Christ, to meet Christ, Jesus saw Nathanael there. Now, this would have had a few elements of a miracle. The fact that he, Christ knew Philip called Nathanael, that Nathanael was under the fig tree, and likely Nathanael being under the fig tree, as we said, there is some out, uh, information outside the Bible and extra biblical writings that the Jews would sit under their fig trees as a place of meditation on the Word of God. So if Nathanael was meditating on the Word of God, the Old Testament Scriptures, he would have been meditating on the Christ of the Scriptures of the Old Testament. So that would have amazed him that Jesus knew that he was under the fig tree and that he was thinking about Christ, and now he actually had the privilege of meeting Christ face to face. And then in verse 49, he says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. He uses three terms, Rabbi, son of God, king of Israel, to identify his faith in Christ. To identify his faith in Christ. Now we come to verse 50. Verse 50, Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? Because I said I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? When Jesus asks this question, he's not asking for the sake of getting an answer. It's a rhetorical question. And also, when Jesus asks this question, he's not condemning Nathaniel for believing. He's not saying, it, it, it took me to give you a miracle to you before you believe. I don't think he is criticizing Nathaniel either. He's explaining to Nathaniel from the lesser to the greater. I just told you one thing that was a miraculous thing or one subject, that is, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip called you. That I explained to you. You had an element of a supernatural revelation given to you and that caused you to believe in me. And that's good. But I'm going to tell you greater things. And it's going to enlarge your faith. You had enough faith to believe what I said about the fig tree, but I'm going to tell you greater things. This is the way in which Jesus is commending the faith of Nathaniel. He's commending the faith of Nathaniel. Let's see this also in two other places. Keep your place in John chapter 1 and also turn to John 20. John 20. John 20, 29. Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with the others when they saw Christ risen from the dead. And he wanted to see Christ face to face, in person, physically. And Christ appeared to him. And when he did, in John chapter 20, what does Thomas say or do in response? 20, 28. 
Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Now this exclamation is an exclamation of faith. It's not him taking God's name in vain, as many people do today when they are stunned about something. They say, Oh my Lord, or Oh my God. That's taking God's name in vain, and then that would be a sin. Thomas is not sinning, but he is expressing faith just like Nathaniel did. Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. So Thomas is doing the same here. My Lord and my God. We know that this is a, com- uh, that this is a confession of faith because Jesus commends him in verse 29. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Which is good, right? Because you saw me, you believed, which is good. He was supposed to believe. He should believe because he saw Christ risen from the dead. However, there's something better. Yes, Nathaniel saw Christ. Thomas saw Christ in person and they believed. And that is good that they believed. But what's better than that? Verse 29. Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. 1 Peter 1, 8. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, But believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Peter, now, to the churches that are scattered abroad in the ancient Roman Empire, when he is writing to these churches, the Christians in these churches, he's commending them that though they did not see Jesus in person, They did not touch him, hear him audibly in person, see him as an eyewitness, yet they do love him. And though they don't see him now, they are greatly rejoicing in the fact that they will see him. And as a result of their faith, they will receive the salvation of their souls. So it was good for Nathaniel, good for Thomas and the others who saw Christ in person, face-to-face, to to believe, but it is even better for us because it takes more faith for us to believe in the one that we have not seen face-to-face by believing the words of Christ. He believed, Thomas believed because of a miracle, Nathaniel believed because of a miracle, and we don't have that miracle. All we have is the word of Christ. And when the word of Christ is delivered, we ought to believe And we are commended when we believe. A word of clarification now on the faith of Nathaniel. We have said that they saw a miracle, but it wasn't merely a miracle that they saw. They had also been taught the word. When Nathaniel encounters Christ here, this is not the point or the moment of Nathaniel's salvation. This is the point or the moment of Nathanael attaching himself to Christ and Christ's ministry, to be one of the 12 disciples. This is what is happening in John chapter 1, verses 35 to 51. 
we have Andrew and the other disciple, unnamed disciple. It may be John the Apostle. Then we have um, Andrew showing Peter who Christ is. And then we have Philip, and then we have Nathaniel. So then Nathaniel is the word or the name John uses of Bartholomew in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Bartholomew in Matthew, Mark, and Luke in the lists of the, the apostles, such as Matthew 10, 2 to 4, that Bartholomew is this Nathaniel. So right here, what we have is them becoming attached to Christ personally as one of the 12 disciples or the 12 apostles. That's what we have here. This is not Nathaniel being converted or Philip being converted or Peter being converted or Andrew or John the apostle being converted. That's not what we have here. Now, we have to say this. This is very important to establish this fact because Nathaniel's faith is not a credulous faith. Nathaniel's faith is not a faith of somebody who was a very simple-minded man, a gullible man, a goober. That's not the way Nathaniel was. And that's not the way these apostles were. That's not what's happening here. They already had a body of knowledge. They already believed in the gospel of Christ before they actually saw Christ face to face. Let me show that. Let me prove that. Already, remember in John chapter 1, we saw from 29 to 34, John 1, 29 to 34, the things that John the Baptist was preaching. 129, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Verse 30, this is he on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. He's the Lamb of God. That means he's unblemished, sinless. He's going to die to take away our sins. He has a higher rank than I do because he existed before me. Though John was born at least six months before Jesus in the world, Luke chapter 1, he was born at least six months before Jesus in the world, he says that Jesus existed before John, which means John the Baptist knew about the deity of Christ. And then also in 133, John the Baptist is preaching the Holy Spirit. 133, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. He's preaching the Holy Spirit to the people. So now they know about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you say, Son, how do they know about the Son of God? Verse 34, And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the Son of God. So the Son of God is Christ, The Father, therefore, is implied, and the Holy Spirit is mentioned. So John the Baptist is preaching, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Son is coming into the world as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. And he now personally points to and identifies the one who it is. Verses 31 and 30, 31 to 33, John 1, 31. And I did not recognize him, but in order that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. And John bore witness, saying, I have beheld the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. That is, the Spirit remained upon Christ. And I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, 
This is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. Now, not only was John preaching Christ in terms of that he would be coming, now personally, face to face, he sees the Holy Spirit descend on Christ and he points to the people, to the crowds of the people who were John's disciples and say, and he says to them, that's the one, the Holy Spirit descended on him, that is the one I've been preaching about since you've been hearing me preach. So John was saying all these things. Furthermore, Acts chapter 19, Acts chapter 19, verse 4. Acts chapter 19, verse 4. Paul the Apostle, later, years later, after John has been executed, persecuted, murdered, executed, after John is gone and then Jesus preaches, ascends into heaven, years later, Paul the Apostle encounters some disciples who had been hearing John preach. After, after several years, they heard John preach. Paul encounters them after sev- several years. And Paul reminds them about what John, their teacher, taught. 19.4. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. John the Baptist was preaching a baptism of repentance, and associated with that repentance was believing in the one coming after John, that is, in Jesus. John was preaching Jesus to the people. And also, if we take Luke 3.18, Luke 3.18, it says about John, And with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people. John the Baptist was preaching the gospel to the people. That is, believing that Jesus, the Lamb of God, would die on the cross to take away the sin of the world. And one more place is Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. What was a qualification? What was a qualification of all of the 12 apostles. What was the qualification? Well, we have it right here. Remember that Judas Iscariot, he murdered himself, so he was gone. Then it was necessary to fill his vacancy. And after they, um, after Jesus rose from the dead, after Jesus ascended into heaven, They are meeting to replace Judas. Acts chapter 1, verse 21. Acts 1, 21. It is therefore necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these should become a witness with us of his resurrection. And then it says that they chose Matthias because the lot fell to him. So Matthias was chosen to replace Judas Iscariot. But what's the qualification? Matthias and Joseph Barsabbas Justice, these two are the candidates. What were the qualifications that these two men had to fulfill? It says in verse 21, It was necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. 
So from the beginning of Jesus' public ministry to the end of his public ministry, and when did his ministry begin? It began with the baptism of John, which means that John was telling people, and there was a collection of people, and these men who understood and who believed in what John was saying about the coming, the imminent coming of Jesus Christ. And they witnessed everything and heard everything John said about the Christ, Jesus Christ. And they stayed with him and witnessed not only everything John preached, but the resurrection of Christ. That's what they understood. They understood all these things. And I submit that Nathaniel was one of them. So Nathaniel was not a gullible man. He was one who was a studied man and who understood the implications and he believed in the gospel already. But he was brought into the fold of the 12 disciples at this point in verse 50. Okay, now back to John 1 and verse 50. John 1, 50. He says to Nathanael, Christ says to Nathanael, you shall see greater things than these. You shall see greater things than these. Yes, it was a miracle for Christ to identify Nathanael and what he was doing at the time that Philip called him. But greater things will be revealed to Nathanael. Chapter 5, John chapter 5, verse 20 the greater things. John 5, verse 20. It says, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him that you may marvel. Because the Father loves the Son, the the Father shows the Son of God all things. And not only that, but when God shows the Son all things, the Son will show us all things and cause us to marvel. Isn't that what Nathaniel did? Nathaniel marveled. He was amazed. And through that amazement, he believed that Jesus was the Christ. And in the same way, there will be more things, many more things that God will reveal To us, there will be many more things that God shows to us. John chapter 14. John chapter 14. John chapter 14, verse 7. 14, 7. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? Then verse 21, 14, 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Will disclose myself to him. The goal, in other words, here in John 14 is for us 
to know Christ in all of his fullness. And if we know Christ in his fullness, we will know the Father in his fullness. And what is it in life that is better to know than God God alone? And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. John 17, 3. Jesus is saying here and teaching us that the greater things we will know have to do with the greater things of Christ. And they will also cause us to marvel. And if we know greater things of Christ, we will know the greater things of God the Father. And there is nothing else, no other knowledge, field of knowledge, that should interest us, that should not have our focus than God Himself. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. 1 Corinthians 2, 9. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen, and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. It is the depths of God by the Holy Spirit that are conveyed to us and things that we have not even imagined that have not come into the heart and thought of man, God has prepared those things for us because we love Him. That's the greater thing. That These are the greater things that we will encounter. We will encounter these things because of our faith in Christ. Furthermore, John 1, John 1, 51. John 1, 51. And he said to him, and Christ to Nathanael, Truly, truly, I say to you, you shall see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Truly, truly, he says. This expression with a double truly, it is unique to the book of John. This happens frequently in the book of John, truly, truly, elsewhere in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It is typically, truly, I say to you. But John's concern is to emphasize the fact that Jesus himself is the truth. That Jesus himself is the truth. Now, you might say, John, or or, or, or notice, John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus calls himself the truth. So when he announces something, he is saying that because I am truth, what I say to you is truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. John 17, 17. Revelation 3, 14. Revelation 3, 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the Amen. The faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this. This is Jesus speaking. And Jesus calls himself the Amen, the faithful and true witness. What he says, because he, by his own nature, is truth, he conveys truth, he communicates truth to all of us. So whatever he says 
is true because his person is true. Now, this word, truly, truly, it comes from a word in the Old Testament, the word amen. Amen or amen, amen. It's from the Old Testament Hebrew word amen, which means to be true or true, truly or faithful. It's used in various ways. This is the meaning of the Hebrew Old Testament word. And it is used to express an affirmative, to express an affirmative, that if you believe something to be correct or true or accurate, then you would say, Amen. You can see this, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 27. When the blessings and curses were pronounced, the people were to say, Amen, as a response to the blessings and curses that Moses or Joshua were um, to conduct. Moses said to do it, and Joshua was the one who actually did it for the tribes of Israel. So in the affirmative, they would say, Amen. Well, if it's translated that word, Amen, it's translated as the word, truly, or true, as Jesus does here. Jesus is the truth, and what he says is truth. Further, he says, I say to you. Notice here, he's claiming to be true, He's claiming to express truth and he's drawing attention to his own person, which is not typically done. Truly, truly, I say to you, it's not typically done, but Jesus does it because Jesus wants everyone to know that when he speaks, we better listen. When he speaks, it is reliable. When he speaks, it is faithful. When he speaks, it is indeed true. When Jesus speaks, we ought to say yes. Never to deny it, never to mitigate it, never to say, well, that's okay for him, but not for me. We should never have that attitude. We should always say, whatever our Lord Jesus says, because he is true, whatever he says is true, and I will believe it. I will obey it. He is our Lord and Savior. Furthermore, he says to Nathanael, you shall see the heavens opened and the angels of God. The heavens opened and the angels of God. Does Jesus mean this in a physical way or does he mean it in a spiritual way? Does he mean it as though there's going to be a literal incident that Nathanael, perhaps the 12, or all of us will see Or does he mean it in a spiritual way? Or does he mean it both ways? Does he mean it in a literal way? Or does he mean it in a spiritual way? Or does he mean it in both ways? I think that it's likely that he may mean it in both ways. In both ways. Now, we do know that the angels came to assist Jesus. It says it in the plural. The angels came to assist Jesus when he was baptized. Uh, I'm sorry, when he was in the wilderness. Uh, Matthew 4:11 and Mark 1:13. When he was in the wilderness after his temptations, the angels came to minister to him. The only problem with that is people did not see it. It doesn't say in the text that people actually saw those angels ministering to him. We know the apostles say the angels ministered to him, but it doesn't say they all witnessed it because he was alone in the wilderness not with his disciples. So that's one occasion. Another occasion 
was when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, Luke twenty two forty three. Luke twenty two forty three. It does say there an angel came to minister to him in the Garden of Gethsemane before his crucifixion. There it's in the singular, an angel came. Furthermore, in terms of the heavens being opened, we do know that at Christ's baptism, the heavens were opened. Matthew 3.16, Mark 1.10, Luke 3.21. All three of them say the heavens were opened when the baptism occurred. The heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended as a dove out of heaven. Furthermore, we know from Acts chapter 7, verse 56, when Stephen was about to be stoned to death, Stephen says in Acts 7, 56, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. The heavens he saw open and the Son of Man standing. However, it does not say angels were there. The same thing with the baptism of Christ. It does not say anything about angels. Furthermore, Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, we do see that there are angels and the heavens opened, both in the same context. Revelation 19.11. Revelation 19.11. And I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems. And he has a name written upon him, which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses." And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There again in 1911, he's called Faithful and True. Verse 13, he is the Word of God. John the Apostle making it clear, he's speaking of Christ. And then it says in, in verse 14, the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. This is a reference to the angels. So heavens are open and the angels are accompanying him in the second coming. And we do know that this will literally happen. He will descend from heaven and the angels will accompany him at the second coming of Christ. Also, if we are to say that Nathanael would be a witness of this, since Jesus says it to Nathanael, that Nathanael will see the heavens open, let's turn to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Remember, Nathanael or Bartholomew, these two names are the names of the same man, disciple of Jesus Christ. And the apostles are with Christ after his resurrection. Eleven of the apostles are with him after his resurrection. So Acts chapter 1, verse 9. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. 
And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was departing, behold, two men, so these are angels, two men in white clothing stood beside them, and they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So if he went into heaven, the heavens had to be opened up. The two men are two angels because it says they are clothed in uh, white clothing. And they saw, the eleven saw him ascend into heaven. And the angels who are there, they likely descended at some point in order to express these words to the eleven disciples. Now, what of a spiritual meaning to this? What of a spiritual meaning to this? That you will see the heavens opened and the angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Then I would refer us to what we said from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 9 and 10. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 and 10. And John 14, 7 to 11. Those verses that we read about how when we are growing in our faith and love and fear of God, we are more and more walking with Christ. God shows us things of the heavens and he also sends us his angels to help us and deliver us. Remember, it says in Hebrews 1, 14, are they not ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. That God will show us more and more spiritual things and bless us with spiritual realities. Then John 1, 51 also says, ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. We read from Genesis chapter 28. And in verses 12 and 13, specifically in those verses, when Jacob was on his way to Padan Aram, he came to a place where when he went to sleep, he saw a dream of angels going up and down on a ladder, up and down on a ladder, and he confesses, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. So he saw in a dream these angels ascending and descending, and then his conclusion is, that the Lord is in this place and I didn't know it. Meaning, I wasn't aware, I wasn't conscious of the fact that God is with me. Yes, he reiterated the promise of Abra- to Abraham and Isaac to Jacob at that point, that he would be the, a blessing to the nations, his seed would be a blessing to the nations. Yes, he re- reiterated the word of God, but also he assured Jacob of the presence of God to reveal more and more to God when Jacob did not realize God was with him at that point. God, he says, surely the Lord is in this place. And he's given this assurance by seeing the angels ascend and descend upon the ladder. So in the same way, I believe Jesus is our ladder to heaven. Jesus Christ is our ladder to heaven, and he has the help and the assistance of angels that he commissions and sends to us to help us, to reveal more to us, to protect us, to protect our souls so that we leave this world and enter the next world safely. 
For it says in 2 Timothy 4.18, The Lord will deliver me from every evil deed and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Yes, God will take our souls by the help of angels into the presence of God. Is that not what it says of Lazarus in Luke 16? That when Lazarus, the poor believer, when the beggar and believer, Lazarus, died, the angels took him away. In the same way, God will send his angels to us, not only to reveal more truth to us, but to guide us and protect us in everything we do. Just as he did, God did with Jacob, he will do so for us. And the Son of Man is the one who commissions them. Remember, it says in Matthew 26, Matthew 26, when Jesus was being arrested, Jesus said, Can I not appeal to my Father who can at once send at his disposal 12 legions of angels to help us, to help Christ, but also to help all of us? Yes, he has that. And then lastly, we come to the phrase, the Son of Man. John 1, 51, the Son of Man. What does this phrase mean? This is the first time we encounter it here in the book of John. Up to now, John has given many, many names, titles, attributes to Christ. We have seen many of them throughout this chapter, but now the first time we read of the Son of Man. Just to remind us of the various names and titles he has given them, given to Christ, John 1, 1, he's called the Word. He's called God. In verses 3 and 4, or verse 3, he is the Creator. In verses 4 and 5, he is life and he is light. In verse Verses uh, 14 and following, he is the word who becomes flesh. He's the one who has the glory of the Father. He's full of grace and truth, verse 14. Verse 15, he existed before John, John the Baptist. Verse 16, 16 and 17, he is full of grace and truth, and they are all realized in his person. In Verse 18, he's called the only begotten Son or only begotten God. In verses 19 and following, he is the Lord, the Lord that Isaiah prophesied that John himself would preach. He would preach the Lord and prepare the way of the Lord. In verse 27, he is so exalted that John says that he's not even worthy to untie the thong of Jesus' sandal. That's how exalted he is. And we saw from verses 29 to 34, Lamb of God takes away sin, has a higher rank than John. The Spirit comes upon him. He is, in verse 34, called the Son of God. And then in verses 35 35 to 45, 35 to 45, a repetition that he is the Lamb of God. He is the teacher, the supreme teacher, the greatest of all teachers, and he is the Messiah in verses 41 and 45. He is Messiah or Christ, the anointed of God. And all of this is no accident. All of this was preached from Genesis to Malachi according to verse 45. It's in the law of Moses and it's in the rest of the prophets of the Old Testament. None of this is an accident, but all ordained and orchestrated by God. Further, in reference to Nathaniel himself, what does Nathaniel call him? 
He calls him in verse 49, Rabbi, another word for teacher, and he doesn't mean it in the average sense. He means it in the supreme sense. You are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. So what John the Baptist preached, Nathaniel already believed, and now he confesses it in the presence of Christ. But now we have son of man. Son of man. Now, what does son of man mean? Let me uh, say that this word son of man has various implications. We don't know why this word was Jesus' favorite designation of himself. If you have read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you know that Jesus often refers to himself in the third person as the Son of Man. Just as he's talking to Nathanael here, and he's referring to himself, but he doesn't say, the angels of God ascending and descending upon me. That would be first person. But he refers to himself in the third person. Why does he do so? The scripture doesn't say exactly why he likes this phrase about himself, this name for himself. But we can tell from various verses and various contexts why he would want to do so. The implications of these are several. And we can enumerate at least eight implications as to what he is saying and doing. The first is that, number one, that he has a spiritual and eternal kingdom. He has a spiritual and eternal kingdom. John chapter 6. John chapter 6 and verse 15. John six fifteen. Jesus, therefore, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. The crowds, after they were fed, said, we like this king because he's going to make sure we are well fed. So they wanted to take him by force and make him king. But Jesus refused that. He rejected that. John 18. John 18. He's about to be crucified by Pontius Pilate. And Pilate is interrogating him. Interrogating him. And in John 18, 36. 18, 36. This dialogue transpires. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting, that I might not be delivered up to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Pilate therefore said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. So Pilate knew that Jesus was preaching a spiritual kingdom, not a physical kingdom. That's why Pilate tells the accusers, I find no guilt in him. If Jesus were seeking a physical kingdom, then Pilate would not have gone out to the Jews to say, I find no guilt in him. He would have accused Jesus of insurrection, of rebellion, of revolt against the Caesar. But he didn't. That was not the charge. I find no guilt in him. So son of man, his kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. 
And we'll speak more of this spiritual kingdom in a moment. Number two, the, the, the phrase son of man implies deity. The phrase son of man implies deity. Now you might say, well, it says man. Yes, but let's look at the context. John chapter 9. John chapter 9, verse 35. John chapter 9, verse 35. Jesus healed a man of blindness. And then it's, it picks up at verse 35. 9.35, Jesus heard that they had put him out, meaning out of the synagogue. They excluded him from the synagogue. And finding him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered and said, and who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe And he worshipped him. The blind man who's now healed worshipped Christ. So this blind man, he already knew about the Son of Man. He had heard and been taught about the Son of Man. Just like Nathaniel, though, he did not actually encounter him face to face. Now he encounters him face to face in the sense that this is the one. And when he realized this is the one, And Jesus says, do you believe in the Son of Man? Then he says, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. He worshipped him because he knew the Son of Man was to be worshipped because he had a divine nature. The Son of Man has a divine nature, therefore he is to be worshipped. Furthermore, Matthew chapter 26, on the deity of the Son of Man. Matthew chapter... 26. Matthew chapter 26. Jesus is on trial before the high priest. The high priest in Matthew 26, 63. 26, 63. But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robe, saying, He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have heard now the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, He is deserving of death. Then they spat in his face and beat him with their fists, and others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? Now, the high priest is asking Christ in verse 63, are you, under oath he's asking Christ, are you the living God? Uh, I'm sorry, are, are you, by the living God, tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Are you the Christ, the Son of God? So, according to the high priest, based on his knowledge of the Old Testament, And this is based on Daniel chapter 7. Based on his knowledge of chapter 7 of the Old Testament, he asks Jesus, are you the Christ, the Son of God? Actually, uh, Daniel 7 and Daniel chapters 7 and 9. 7 and 9, are you the Christ, the Son of God? So Jesus says to him, you have said it yourself. So those two identifications... Christ, Son of God, referred to the same individual. 
And Jesus says, you said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, now I'm going to tell you. You said it, now I'm going to tell you. Hereafter, you shall see. You shall see. Similar to Nathaniel, you shall see. You shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. This is a citation. Jesus is citing Daniel 7, 13, where Daniel the prophet predicts that when the second coming occurs, this Son of Man is going to come from the right hand of God, and he's going to come in the clouds of heaven, and he's going to come with his angels. He's going to come with his angels. And the high priest knows what Jesus is talking about. See here, Jesus calls himself Son of Man. So if Jesus is Son of Man, the Christ, and the Son of God, he's claiming to be one who deserves worship as God, as deity. And that's why the high priest is appalled and accuses him of blasphemy and deserving of death. Because if you claim to be God, then you deserved to be put to death, according to Deuteronomy chapters 13 and 18. If you claim anything like that, you deserve to die. But Jesus was God, and the high priest rejected that. Number three, number three, when it says son of man, when it says son of man, the word man comes from a Hebrew word, Adam, which means mad, uh, I'm sorry, man, and it is also the name of a man, Adam. It is the general word man, but for Adam, the first man, it became his personal name. So his personal name, proper name, was Adam, but the word originally is a generic word for man, as opposed to animals. Man as opposed to animals. So when it says son of man, Jesus is identifying himself. He's implying that he is a replication of Adam, but a better replication of Adam. Adam was the first man, but Jesus is the last Adam, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 45. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last man, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. Jesus is the life-giving spirit, the last Adam. So Jesus implies that what Adam failed to do when he was in the garden, failed to obey one commandment of God, Jesus fulfilled all the commandments of God as a replication of Adam, as the last Adam. So he is the counterpart to the first Adam. That's number three. Number four, not only is Jesus implying that he is the counterpart to Adam in the true and good sense, but this also implies that Jesus possesses a human nature, it possess, he, that he possesses a human nature, son of man. Examples of this, John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Furthermore, John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verse 52. John 6, 52. The Son of Man as having a, a fleshly or human nature, the nature of man as opposed to animals, plants, and rocks. 
52. The Jews therefore began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus therefore said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. My flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also shall live because of me. This is the true bread which came down out of heaven. Not as the fathers ate and died, he who eats this bread shall live forever. Christ is using a metaphor. He's talking about spiritual truths. He does not mean literally we need to eat his flesh. But because he had a literal body, that literal body was going to shed its blood on the cross. So if we believe that he literally died on the cross for our sins and shed his blood for our sins, we have eternal life. So for that crucifixion to be real and for the application of the crucifixion to us, he has to have a real, tangible, physical body. So son of man implies that as well. Furthermore, number five, point number five, implication number five is that it implies redeemed humanity. Not just that he became a human, but he is associated and the head of the eldest brother of redeemed humanity. John chapter 12. John chapter 12, verse 32. John 12, 32. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. The multitude therefore answered him, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? See there, Son of Man, Jesus associates with dying on the cross. And when he dies on the cross, he's going to draw all to himself, meaning all the redeemed to himself. It has to do with his death. Now, in verse 34, it also has to do with living forever. So the crowds, they did get part of it right. And we'll see the part that they got right, but they misunderstood the sequence of events. Okay, we'll see that in a moment as well. But here, clearly, it's redeemed humanity. One more place about redeemed humanity is taken from Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. As you're finding your place in Hebrews 2, verse 5, remember that we had read Psalm 8. And Psalm 8 is quoted here. And Psalm 8 is a psalm of Christ, as it's quoted here. We see that clearly, that it is a psalm of Christ. Hebrews 2, verse 5. For he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking, but one has testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he, has, he, he left nothing that is not subject to him. 
But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. The he and the him here is God and the Son, the Son of God, the Son of Man. Verse 9, But we do see him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my spirit in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. 14. Since then, the children share in the in flesh and blood. He himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might render those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham or the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, He had to be made like his brethren in all things that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. In verse 6, the Son of Man is the Son of Man who suffered He had a nature like ours. He partook of flesh and blood like ours in order to redeem us from death and the devil and from our sins. Now, he is our eldest brother and calls us brothers. Point number six. Point number six. From Daniel chapter seven, verse 13. From Daniel 7, 13 Daniel says, I saw one like a son of man. One like a son of man. Now, if Daniel said one like a son of man, why did he say like a son of man? That's one question. The next question is, why does Jesus typically refer to himself as the son of man? Why like the Son of Man? First, that's number six. Like a Son of Man, because we are sons of Adam too. All all of us are, correct? We're all from Adam, but we are sinful. But he is like us, but not exactly like us, because he is sinless. Jesus is like us in that he is sinless. John the Baptist said in John 1.29, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. For the Lamb to take away sin, the Lamb has to be an unblemished Lamb. The physically unblemished Lambs of the Old Testament sacrifices were physically unblemished to represent the spiritual blamelessness or sinlessness of the need that we need have need to take away our sins. That Jesus would be the sinless Lamb to take away our sins. So he is like us in that he has a human nature, but he's dislike us, unlike us, 
because he does not have sin. In fact, in John 8.46, John 8.46, he tells the people, which one of you convicts me of sin? Which one of you convicts me of sin? The answer is nobody can convict him of sin. Hebrews 4.15, he was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So that's why I believe in Daniel 7.13, he's called one like a son of man. But though he's called one like a son of man, then it became a title or a name for the supreme, the ultimate, superior son of man. That's the next point, point number seven. Point number seven, he's called the son of man, such as in John 1.51, because he is set apart from all of us. We are called sons of God, are we not? Angels are called sons of God, are we not? We are called sons of God by redemption in Christ. Angels are called sons of God because they reflect some of the glory of God. But Jesus is called the Son of God or the only begotten Son of God because he uniquely has a divine nature. We don't have that. He does. In the same way, he is uniquely called the Son of Man because he is distinct from us. He is the supreme, superior Son of man, point number seven. And then finally, point number eight. Point number eight. And this one will take us to the book of Daniel, the book of Daniel, chapters seven and nine. So turn with me to the book of Daniel, book of Daniel, chapter seven. Daniel, chapter seven. 7 and verse 13. Actually, we should um, start at verse 9. Daniel 7, verse 9. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. Those are the angels. The court sat, and the books were open. Day of judgment. Verse 11. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain, and his body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. 13. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, that's the son of man, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. That word serve is also the word for worship, might serve or worship him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. The Son of Man here is to be worshipped. The Son of Man here has a kingdom. The Son of Man here has everyone worshipping him, and his dominion or kingdom lasts forever. It's not one that comes and goes. Isn't that what Daniel has been saying all along in his book? 
He's been preaching, prophesying, seeing dreams, interpreting dreams of kingdoms coming and going, coming and going, coming and going because of the sovereignty of God. But because of the sovereignty of God, one day the Son of Man will have an eternal kingdom and everyone will worship him. So this is a spiritual, eternal kingdom which the Son of Man inherits. He inherits it forever. Well, the Jews expected this. Many of the Jews expected it. And that's why we saw at one point in the book of John, the people said, we heard in the law that the Christ is supposed to remain forever. How is it that you say that he is to be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? The problem was they didn't read their Bibles carefully or they only feasted upon the good parts of the Bible and they did not reflect upon the parts that were less appealing to them. Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. And we can begin at verse 25. Daniel 9, 25. So you are to know and discern from, that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince or Christ the King, Christ the King, Messiah the Prince, There will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah, the Christ, will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with the flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. Well, This passage clearly says Christ or Messiah two times, 25 and 26. And what's going to happen in troublous times, in times of tumult, in times of warfare? And often we don't want to read about that. We don't want to hear about that. We want to hear about peace and prosperity. We don't naturally like to hear about warfare and destruction and death and misery. Well, who also is going to be put to death in 26? It says, Messiah, or Christ, will be cut off. He will be cut off and have nothing. He's not going to have a physical kingdom. He's going to be cut off, crucified. The word cut off means to be executed. So he's going to be crucified and have nothing. He's not going to have this physical kingdom. He's going to have a different, eternal kingdom. So the question arises, If Daniel chapter 7 is about Christ and Daniel chapter 9 is about Christ, which of these two has to happen first? Daniel chapter 9 has to happen first. The death of Christ, the suffering of Christ has to happen first. Then the glory of Christ happens second. The suffering of Christ first, the glory of Christ second. That must be the sequence of events. After all, And Daniel isn't the only place. Psalm 110 is another place. Psalm 110 says, 110.1, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. But also it says in Psalm 110, verse 4, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. How will Jesus be a priest forever? But also it says that he's supposed to sit down at the right hand of the Father until 
the enemies of Christ are made a footstool for his feet. Until Christ crushes and humiliates his enemies, he's supposed to be at the right hand of the Father. So which happens first? Well, in Psalm 110.1, he has to come into the world. He has to ascend into heaven, as Peter said in Acts chapter 2. David's not talking about himself. David did not ascend into heaven, but Christ ascended at the right hand of the Father. So if he comes into the world first, ascends to the Father, there's a period of time, and then after this period of time, he returns to make his enemies a footstool for his feet, then he will, without any any kind of resistance, be a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Of course, he's a priest right now, but he's going to be manifestly a priest for all of us, for all eternity, yet future. In a sense, he's a priest now, but he's also a priest in the future. So, even Psalm 110 says, the suffering has to happen first, and then the glories happen second. And that's what Jesus was teaching in reference to the Son of Man. Matthew 20, 28. But the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So the Son of Man came to give his life a ransom, a death for many. But also Jesus said in John 14, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would, I would have told you. But I go and prepare a place for you, that where I am, there you may be also. That's the return of Christ. Daniel chapter 7. And the eternal kingdom. So, these are, I think, the implications, the eight implications of believing in the Son of Man. This is all throughout Scripture. This is what Nathaniel had to come to believe. And this is what we all must come to believe. Christ and Christ alone. Understand His first coming. Understand His second coming. And understand this intermediate period in which we live. And may we glorify Him. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.